0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit garynorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Victim's Rights, The Biblical View of Civil Justice by Gary North. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1990. This book is dedicated to Baby Doe and the fifty million other victims who are aborted annually, worldwide. They, not their executioners, deserve our compassion. Chapter 1. The Covenant Lawsuit And he that smiteth his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. Exodus 21.15 And he that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Exodus twenty-one seventeen. The theocentric principle here is obvious. God the Father must not be attacked by his children. Parents are God's covenantal agents in the family, which is a hierarchical, oath-bound, covenantal institution. They are God's covenantal representatives in the family. To strike an earthly parent is the covenantal equivalent of striking at God, It is an act of moral rebellion so great that the death penalty is invoked. The doctrine of hierarchy, which includes the doctrine of representation, is point two of the biblical covenant model. The book of Exodus, the second book in the Pentateuch, is primarily concerned with point two of the covenant, for the Pentateuch is itself structured in terms of the biblical covenant's five-point structure. It is appropriate that questions relating to representation should be the focus of several of the case laws of Exodus. The covenant's representation principle is built into the creation. We know that the visible creation testifies to the existence of the invisible God. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, Romans one twenty. Men, as creatures, cannot strike at God directly. They must act through intermediaries. Men strike some aspect of God's creation in their attempt to strike at God. A crime is committed in history against God-created men and the God-created environment, but always in the creation's capacity as reflecting God. Men are creatures, so they must use the creation as the only available means of any attempted attack on God. As Cornelius Van Til once wrote, the child must sit on the father's lap in order to slap his face. Biblically and covenantally speaking, the earthly victim of a crime is always the secondary victim. God is always the primary victim. Ours is a theocentric universe, not anthropocentric. This means, additionally, that the criminal acts in his own interests secondarily. When committing a biblically prohibited act, He acts primarily as Satan's representative, just as Adam did. This judicial principle, the doctrine of covenantal representation, is not intuitively apparent to those who are not trained to think theocentrically and covenantally. We must learn to think theocentrically and representatively, covenantally, when we think about crime and punishment. Christians and Jews should therefore begin any consideration of the principles of biblical jurisprudence with this fundamental legal principle. God is always the primary victim of every sin and every crime. This leads to a crucial conclusion. The victims of any crime or unlawful attack become the legal representatives of God. The victim of a crime is authorized by God, the author of history, to initiate a covenant lawsuit against the suspected criminal. He, and he alone, is so authorized. While it is legitimate to speak of primary and secondary earthly victims of crime, we must always bear in mind that the primary cosmic victim is always God. Because of the somewhat intricate nature of my arguments in this chapter, I think it is best if I state my conclusion in advance, so that the reader will be better able to assess the cogency of my argumentation. The conclusion that I have come to after having studied in detail this and other biblical case laws is that the following judicial principle is dominant in the Bible. If the victim of a crime fails to initiate this covenant lawsuit, then the other covenantal agents of God must honor this decision. The civil magistrate, the church officer, and the head of a household. They are not authorized in this instance to step in and prosecute in God's name as God-ordained covenantal judges. They are unquestionably judges, but because of this principle of victims' rights, they are prohibited from prosecuting if the victim decides to forego bringing the lawsuit, unless they can show that they themselves have become victims because of the original victim's failure to prosecute. This does not mean that the civil government cannot lawfully prosecute a criminal who has either bribed or threatened a victim or a witness to withhold evidence from the court. Such an act is defined in modern jurisprudence as obstructing justice. It places the judges at a disadvantage in pursuing their God-given assignment. It reduces their ability to protect the public. The criminal would walk out of the court as a free man when he should be placed under restraints or even executed. If allowed to go free without suffering sanctions, he would place other citizens under a greater statistical probability of fraud or violence. For example, the public is entitled to information from victims regarding felonies committed by repeat offenders. Thus, the court has a legitimate right to impose sanctions against criminals who use the threat of violence against a victim, and on both the victim and the criminal, if the latter has paid the victim to keep quiet regarding a felony that would otherwise have led to the lawful execution of the criminal if convicted. What we must understand is that in the biblical jurisprudence, It is the victim whose rights must always be upheld, not simply because he was harmed by the criminal, but also because he served as God's surrogate when he became the victim. God is the primary victim, and his rights must be upheld first and foremost. His specified judicial sanctions must be enforced by his designated covenantal representatives. His case laws provide mankind with the proper guidelines of how his honor is to be upheld in various cases. There is another Bible-sanctioned office to consider. The office of witness. The witness is authorized to bring relevant information to one of these covenantal judges, so that the judge can initiate the covenant lawsuit against the suspected violator. The witness plays a very important role in the prosecution of God's covenant lawsuits. Without at least two witnesses, it is illegal to execute anyone. Deuteronomy 17.6. Also, The affirming witnesses in a capital lawsuit must be the first people to cast stones. Deuteronomy 17.7 The Biblical Hierarchical Structure Adam was allowed to do anything he wanted in the garden, except eat from the forbidden tree. There was a specific sanction attached to that crime, a capital sanction. This reveals a fundamental biblical judicial principle. Anything is permitted unless it is explicitly prohibited by law or prohibited by an extension of a case law's principle. This principle places the individual under public law, but it also relies on self government as the primary policing device. It creates the bottom up appeals court character of biblical society. Men are judicially free to act however they please, unless society, through its various covenantal courts, has been authorized by God's Bible-revealed law to restrict certain specified kinds of behavior. The bottom-up appeals court structure of the biblical hierarchy is in opposition to the principle of top-down bureaucratic control. Under the latter hierarchical system, in theory, nothing is permitted except what has been commanded. The decision-making private individual is tightly restricted. The centralized state is expanded. This is the governing principle of all socialist economic planning. It assumes the omniscience and omnicompetence of distant central planners. What a free society needs is predictable law. The maximum sanction for any crime must be specified in written law, or at least in traditional legal precedent. The criminal must know the maximum negative consequences of conviction. He is under law, but so are his judges the state as well as the criminal are restrained under biblical law. The state is placed under tight judicial restraints, and first and foremost of these restraints is the requirement that crimes and their respective sanctions be announced in advance. There must be no ex post facto statutes or sanctions. This reduces the arbitrary authority of judges to apply sanctions or increase sanctions beyond what is specified in the law code. They sometimes possess the authority to reduce the specified sanctions, as this chapter argues, but never to increase them. This restriction drastically reduces the growth of arbitrary civil power. By adhering to this biblical principle of responsible freedom under specified law, the West made possible the development of modern capitalism and its accompanying high per capita wealth. The limits on the biblical state's ability to impose arbitrary sanctions are derived from three case law principles. First, the God-given authority of the victim to refuse to prosecute and also his authority to reduce the applicable sanctions upon conviction of the criminal restrict the power of the civil magistrate. Second, the maximum sanction allowed by existing law keeps the state under restraint. Third, the pleonasm of execution, dying he shall die, inhibits the authority of the judges to subsidize outrageous crimes by imposing reduced sanctions in specific cases, where the state has lawfully initiated the covenant lawsuit because there is no earthly victim who could initiate it. To deny any of these principles is to promote the advent of the messianic state. To describe the working of these three case law principles, we need to begin with the maximum civil sanction, Execution. Because public execution is the maximum civil sanction allowed by God's law, it has the most critics. Capital Punishment, Yesterday and Today One of the complaints against the continuing legitimacy of biblical law is that the death penalty is too rigorous to be applied as a sanction against most of the capital crimes specified by the Old Testament. Therefore, conclude the Mosaic Law's critics, execution is no longer a valid civil sanction today, except in the case of murder. This line of argumentation leads to the peculiar conclusion that in the old covenant era, covenantally faithful people were expected by God to be a lot more rigorous about prosecuting criminals, and were therefore expected to be more willing to see God's civil sanctions enforced. This rigorous, quote, Old Testament attitude, end quote, towards criminals is no longer valid. It is said, because of the coming of the new covenant. But if Christians are to be less rigorous regarding crime and its appropriate civil sanctions, then God also must have adopted a more lenient attitude, which is supposedly reflected in his new covenant law. A major problem with this line of reasoning is the fact that God's new covenant standards seem to be more rigorous. For example, the prohibition of easy divorce, Matthew 19, 7-9. With greater maturity and greater revelation, Christians are supposed to be less lenient about sin. After all, more is expected from him to whom more has been given. Luke twelve forty seven and 48. The New Testament gives Christians greater revelation and assigns us far more responsibility than was the case in the old covenant era. Christ's resurrection is behind us. The Holy Spirit has come. It could be argued, of course, that because greater mercy has been shown to us, we should extend greater mercy. With respect to the judicial principle of victims' rights, I quite agree. The victim should be more merciful, so long as his mercy does not subsidize further evil. He must judge the character of the criminal. But this does not answer the question of designated capital crimes. Is it the state's responsibility to adopt the principle of reduced New Covenant sanctions despite the explicit revelation of the Old Covenant case laws. Should the state adopt a judicial principle different from that which prevailed in the Old Covenant? I answer no. Furthermore, I also answer that civil judges in the Old Covenant, Israel, had the God-given authority to reduce the severity of the specified sanctions under certain circumstances. I develop the evidence for this conclusion in this chapter. Critics of Capital Punishment also argue that righteous and sensitive jury members today are unwilling to hand down guilty verdicts against offenders in many cases, since the death penalty is much too harsh. If the death penalty is kept on the statute books, critics argue, serious criminal behavior is therefore indirectly subsidized by victims' unwillingness to prosecute and juries' unwillingness to convict. Thus, conclude the critics, we should ignore the Old Testament's capital sanction in all but the case of premeditated murder. Some Christian critics would even abandon capital punishment in this instance, following the lead of secular humanists, criminologists, and jurists. It is my belief that in the 20th century, there are three affirmations, the denial of which best indicates the presence of Christian heresy. Heresy is easy to conceal in a world of endless qualifications and maneuvering. But three affirmations go right to the heart of the neo evangelical and neo orthodox rejection of biblical revelation. The first is the inerrancy of the Bible, as delivered in the original manuscripts. The second is the doctrine of eternal punishment. The third is the doctrine of capital punishment, as specified in the Old Testament case laws, unless modified by a specific New Testament revelation. I think the third is related to the second God's merciless torturing of his covenant breaking enemies and the state's merciless delivery of capital crime-committing offenders into the court of the eternally torturing judge. Therefore, the affirmation of the legitimacy of case law-specified capital punishment is an initial step back on the road to Christian orthodoxy. The Rebellious Son One of the Christian antinomians' most effective arguments today against the revealed law of God is the law which requires the execution of the rebellious son. This brings us to the passages under consideration in this chapter. The execution of a son who strikes his father, Exodus 21.15, or assaults his parents verbally, Exodus 21.17. Both of these passages contain the phrase, He shall surely be put to death. Literally, the Hebrew phrase reads, Dying, he shall surely die. A Pleonism. There is no question that biblical law specifies execution as the appropriate penalty for adult rebellious sons. Biblical law's critics see this as a grave defect in the case law system, almost as if God made a horrendous mistake in the Old Testament, which he somehow rectified in the New Testament. If capital punishment is automatic upon conviction, says the critics of capital punishment, then the parents will probably refuse to take him before the judges they will swallow their injured pride and tolerate evil in their midst. So runs the argument against a specified capital punishment specified in the Mosaic Law. It is a representative argument that is subsequently used against virtually all of the biblical case laws to which the capital sanction is attached. The obvious preliminary response to this line of reasoning is this. Were parents in the Old Covenant significantly different from parents today? were they more willing to see their sons executed? This is something inherently unconvincing about the critics' line of argumentation. It assumes too great a discontinuity between the emotional makeup of righteous people in the Old Testament and righteous people today. Furthermore, if the biblically required sanction of execution is too harsh today, was God too harsh in ancient Israel? What has changed? God's character? Men's character? Men's emotions? Social circumstances? The critics become conveniently vague at this point. They prefer not to speculate about the reason or reasons for the supposed change. But the questions do not go away. Until we have surveyed the evidence that undergirds the biblical concept of victim's rights, we must defer considering the the judicial problem of executing the rebellious son who strikes his parent. This sanction can be understood properly only in terms of the Bible's concept of victim's rights. We will return to it in chapter 2, pages 51 through 53. But as we consider the question of victims' rights, we need to keep in mind this question. Is execution really what these texts require in every instance of the stated infractions, striking and cursing parents? I am devoting much of this chapter to a detailed consideration of the key phrase, shall surely be put to death. It requires a lengthy excursion in order to deal with some things not intuitively obvious from the text. The conclusion that I reach will prove useful in interpreting the next verse in Exodus, one, sh- one which specifies capital punishment for kidnappers. The same problem of interpretation occurs throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, though not Deuteronomy, since the phrase, he shall surely die, does not occur in Deuteronomy. I begin my discussion by considering the theological basis of all prosecutions by any courts. Or the covenant lawsuit. Who will bring the covenant lawsuit? Adam and Eve had to serve as witnesses and judges in the garden. There was no escape from these two offices. The serpent had forced their hand. They had heard Satan's temptation, namely, that they could be as God if they disobeyed God. Genesis 3 5. They had become witnesses. They could not escape from their knowledge of the serpent's words he had spoken in their presence. They could stand with God and God's law by obeying God's word concerning himself, the forbidden fruit, and the promised sentence of execution. Or they could stand with Satan and his word concerning God, the forbidden fruit, and the promised execution. But when called upon by God to testify in his court, they would be required to testify either against themselves, if they stood with Satan, or against Satan, if they stood with God. They both sought to escape self-incrimination. Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. Still, there was no available judicial escape. Their fig leaves testified against them. They knew they were guilty, and their wardrobes testified to their sense of guilt. They also had to serve as judges. They could issue a condemnation of God by eating the forbidden fruit. Or they could issue a condemnation of Satan, either by eating of the tree of life or by eating from any tree except the forbidden one, or by not eating anything at all. But they could not avoid serving as judges. They had to decide. They had to act. They had to render judgment. The two offices, witness and judge, were inherent in their position as God's authorized representatives on earth, Genesis 1, 26-28. Because of Satan's rebellion and his temptation of them, they were forced to decide, against whom would they bring the required covenant lawsuit? God or Satan? They brought it against God. They served as Satan's agents. They implicitly claimed to be the victims of God's discriminatory restrictions against them, for God had denied them access to the forbidden fruit, and he had obviously lied to them concerning his power to enforce his will. They must have regarded his promised sanctions as a lie. Why else would anyone commit automatic suicide for a bite of forbidden fruit? They brought their covenant lawsuit against God in absentia, by partaking of the forbidden fruit in the presence of Satan, thereby indulging in a satanic sacrament, an unholy communion service. They ate a ritual meal in the presence of the prince of demons. This is what Paul warns against, eating at the table of demons. 1 Corinthians 10.21 From the day that the serpent tempted Adam and Eve by testifying falsely concerning God's revealed word, there has been a designated victim of all criminal behavior, God. Satan needed to recruit human accomplices in his war against God. He needed two witnesses, the required number, to prosecute anyone successfully for a capital crime, Deuteronomy 17.6. But the moment that Adam and Eve brought their false testimony into God's court, they became subject to the penalty for perjury Suffering the same punishment to which the falsely accused victim was subject, Deuteronomy nineteen sixteen through nineteen. If their testimony had been true, then God must have lied about who is truly sovereign over the universe. He would have given false testimony against the true God, man. God would have been guilty of calling man to worship a false god, which is a capital offense, Deuteronomy thirteen six through nine. He would also have been guilty of false prophesying, another capital offense, Deuteronomy thirteen one through five. Adam and Eve had sought to indict God for a capital offense. They were subsequently executed by God. So are all their heirs who persist in refusing to renounce the judicial accusations of their parents who represented them in God's court. In His grace, God offered them a judicial covering, a temporary stay of execution which was symbolized by the animal skins. Genesis 3.21 This symbolic covering required the slaying of an animal. God offered them time on earth to repent. He offered them a way to make restitution to him, the blood sacrifice of specified animals. He did this because he looked forward in time to the death of his son on the cross, the only possible restitution payment large enough to cover the sin of Adam and his heirs. His son's representative death is the basis of all of God's gifts to mankind in history. Grace is an unearned gift meaning a gift earned by Christ at Calvary and given by God to all men in history. Christ's restitution payment serves as the basis of common grace to covenant breakers in history and special grace to covenant keepers in history and eternity. The words of Christ on the cross are the basis of common grace in history. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke twenty three thirty four. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, but Jesus Christ grants grace to the ignorant anyway. He paid God's price. He suffered God's sanctions. So he has the right to grant temporal, common forgiveness on no terms at all, and eternal, special forgiveness on his own terms. Criminal and victim as covenantal representatives Adam and Eve served as Satan's representatives when they had communion with him thereby bringing a covenantal lawsuit against God. Had they refused to take Satan's advice, they would have served as God's representatives against Satan. The point is representation is an inescapable concept. The issue is never this one, to serve or not to serve as the covenantal representative of a supernatural being. The question is rather, which supernatural being shall I represent covenantally? There's no escape from this decision and its consequences. What does the word covenant mean biblically? God has created a legal relationship to man, one which is based on a legal bond. There is no personal relationship between God and man apart from this legal bond. The covenant structure has five parts. 1. Transcendence, yet presence of God. 2. Hierarchy, representative authority. 3. Ethics, law. 4. Oath, Judgment and sanctions. 5. Succession, inheritance and continuity. By combining the first letters, we get an acronym, theos, the Greek word for God. God's three covenantal institutions are governed in terms of this five point structure. These institutions of God authorized government are church, state, and family. The covenant structure is an inescapable concept. When a man sins, He thereby brings a covenantal lawsuit against God. His action violates all five points of the covenant. First, he denies that God is who he says he is, the lawgiver and eternal judge. Second, he declares himself no longer under God's hierarchical authority. Third, he says that God's ethical standards do not apply to him. Fourth, he denies that God can or will apply his sanctions either in history or eternity. Fifth, he asserts that covenant breakers shall inherit the earth. Let us consider in greater detail point two, hierarchy. By rebelling against God, he thereby places himself under the hierarchical authority of Satan. He becomes Satan's representative. This is why Christ spoke to Peter so harshly when Peter denied that Christ would soon go to his death. Get thee behind me, Satan. Matthew sixteen twenty three a Men's actions are always representative. This is why God judges between the saved and lost, between sheep and goats on Judgment Day, Matthew 25.32. The eternal life and death question on that great and terrible day will be, which sovereign did you represent and serve on earth, God or Satan? It is clear that Adam and Eve sinned directly against God. More specifically, they sinned against the God who walked in the garden, Genesis 3.8. This is the character of all sin, a denial of God's word, his authority, his ethical character, his sanctions, and his ability to disinherit covenant breakers. Sin is a representative denial of God's covenant, his transcendence, his authority, his law, his judgment, and his inheritance. Man sins against God covenantally. He would steal the very throne of God if he could. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation, in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14 What will be the result of this attempted theft of God's glory? Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Isaiah 14, 15 Divorce by Covenantal Death I have argued that sin is always a representative act. It is the act of bringing a covenantal lawsuit against God. A crime is a special kind of sin, a publicly verifiable act against God's civil law. It is an act of defiance against God's civil covenant with either an individual or some aspect of the environment as God's representative agent. We can see the principle of victims' rights more clearly by focusing on marital divorce as a covenant lawsuit. Jesus sets forth this law regarding divorce. It hath been said... Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Matthew 5:31 and 32. In this chapter, I do not want to cover all the theological ground that Ray Sutton covers in his book, Second Chance. Biblical Blueprints for Divorce and Remarriage I agree with his argument that divorce is above all a covenantal act, and that any crime listed in the Old Testament as a capital offense constitutes legal grounds for divorce today. Jesus did not abrogate the Old Testament cut case laws that govern divorce and remarriage, except to make them more rigorous. The principle of New Testament divorce is the same as it was in the Old Testament, divorce by covenantal execution. There may also be physical execution involved, but in both Old and New Testament law, covenantal execution is primary. Eternal execution in God's heavenly court is of greater consequence than physical execution by the civil government's court, Matthew 10:28. 28. Biblically speaking, physical execution is simply the God-ordained legal consequence of specific forms of covenantal execution. This has also been argued by R.J. Rushduni and Greg Bonson with respect to divorce. I do not try to prove this argument in this chapter. I begin with the assumption that it is biblically correct. Those who disagree should consult these other sources. This line of reasoning from the Old Testament's case laws raises an important practical and legal issue. When a spouse commits an act that produces covenantal death, judicial death in the eyes of God, and when this is proven in one or both of God's authorized earthly courts, ecclesiastical and civil, either by injured spouse or by other witnesses, the covenantally dead person becomes subject to covenantal sanctions. In a systematically biblical civil government, the maximum penalty attached to many of these crimes would be death. This would lead to divorce by physical execution because there has already been divorce by covenantal execution. John 8 The standard response from those who reject such a harsh, for example, God-established penalty, is an appeal to John 8, the case of the woman who was taken in adultery. I believe that this passage was in the original Bible text. Biblical higher critics and many Orthodox Christians deny this, since most of the older Greek manuscripts do not include John seven fifty three through eight eleven. Most modern translations of the Bible provide a marginal note to this effect. But if this passage is not in the Bible, then surely the Old Testament's capital sanction against adultery has not been altered. If John 8 is not in the biblical canon, then there is no other passage that supports the case for an alteration of the capital sanction against adulterers except Joseph's forgiving of Mary, which we will examine in detail later. John 8 deals with a woman who was discovered in the very act of adultery. Verse 4. Her accusers, witnesses brought her before Jesus, challenging him to render judgment. This was clearly an attempted trap on their part, for Jesus was neither a civil nor an ecclesiastical official. The woman's accusers were also judicially corrupt. They were law-breaking deceivers, for they were being highly selective. Her partner was not brought before Jesus. Might he have been one of their ecclesiastical or professional associates? Jesus challenged them. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her, verse 7b. Then he stooped down and wrote something in the dirt, verse 8. The only instance recorded in the New Testament of his writing anything. Might he have written the names of the women who were well-known, biblically speaking, by the women's accusers? We do not know what he wrote. We do know that her accusers immediately decided to leave. Discretion was the better part of valor in their view. They did not continue to press charges against her. Thus, without the presence of two witnesses, she could not be legally convicted of a capital crime according to Old Covenant law, Deuteronomy 17.6. The witnesses had to cast the first stones, Deuteronomy 17.7. But they all had departed, so Jesus asked her an obviously rhetorical question. Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath not man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go, and sin no more. Verses 10b-11 through 11. Jesus knew she was guilty as initially accused. He told her to go and sin no more, making clear to her that he knew she was guilty. But adultery is a civil matter. Without witnesses, she could not be lawfully convicted. She acknowledged him as Lord in her own words. He warned her not to do this thing again. There are millions of short-sighted, instinctively law-breaking and covenant-denying Christians who argue that this incident proves that adultery is no longer a capital crime. They invariably point to Jesus' words, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. They challenge those who affirm the law. You see? We, meaning you, are not to judge anyone unless we, meaning you, have no sin. This interpretation of Christ's words is utter lunacy. Its implications are preposterous. If pressed, these he is who, he who is without sin, interpreters will admit that the New Testament does allow the state to enforce penalties against criminals, Romans 13:1 through7. But then their whole argument collapses. He who is sinful must cast the first stone. For all people have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. If their argument is taken seriously, then John 8 prohibits all capital punishment, and probably all punishment by anyone, any time. If true, this principle of interpretation would make all covenantal sanctions impossible to enforce—family, church, and state. It would mean the end of all human government. It cannot possibly mean this. In the Old Testament, God established the death penalty for various crimes— Were old covenant judges and witnesses without sin? Obviously not. So what did Jesus really mean? This particular sin. The most obvious explanation is that he meant, he that is without this particular sin, let him cast the first stone. Then he started writing something in the dirt. The witnesses immediately departed. The biblical judicial principle is this, Those who have committed a particular crime but who have not been tried and convicted by a lawful court, or who have not privately offered to make restitution, and who have therefore not been forgiven by the victim, are not fit to serve as witnesses or judges of those who are accused of having committed the same crime. This is a reasonable interpretation and a reasonable view of justice. It does not necessitate the scrapping of all civil law, all capital sanctions, and the sanction of death for men who commit adultery with other men's wives. When Jesus told her to go and sin no more, did he really expect her to be able to avoid all sin for the rest of her life? Of course not, but what he did expect her to be able to do was to avoid the sin of adultery. He did not have sin in general in mind in this passage when he used the word sin, but rather the particular sin of adultery. Thus, it is totally misleading for people to use this passage as a proof text that Jesus established a new civil penalty, or even no penalty at all, for the civil crime of adultery. He did not abandon the Mosaic law in John 8. On the contrary, he followed the Mosaic law's procedural requirements to the letter. She was publicly innocent in terms of the procedural requirements of the Mosaic law. Thus, he did not execute his historical wrath upon her in his capacity as perfect humanity. Only the witnesses were allowed to do that, and they had departed. He would deal with her later as God, the perfect witness on judgment day in his court. Until then, She was granted time to repent and reform her ways. So are all the rest of us. Obvious, isn't it? Yet for several generations, pietists and antinomians, those who reject biblical law, have persuaded Christians that John 8 represents some remarkable break with the Old Testament. Christians who hate God's law also hate the New Testament, so they do whatever they can to distort it and misinterpret it even when their misinterpretations lead to obviously preposterous conclusions. They do not worry about preposterous conclusions. They worry instead about a sovereign God who threatens individuals and society with judgments in history for sin. They are, in principle, adulterers themselves, and they are looking for an escape from God's authorized civil sanctions against adultery. Should they someday fall into this sin, they are looking for loopholes, civil, ecclesiastical, and psychological. Witnesses as unauthorized prosecutors. There is another aspect of this incident that must be considered. Jesus dealt directly with the sins of the witnesses. He did not focus on questions of legal procedure. He did not point out that they should have gone immediately to a civil court. He did not ask them rhetorically, Who made me a judge over you? He did not remind them that the other guilty party was missing. It is clear that his main concern was not with the procedural de- details of the incident. He preferred instead to deal positively with the sinful condition of the accused woman. She was the focus of his concern, not her accusers. He acted to remove them from his presence so that, so that he might restore her to moral and judicial wholeness. This was his tactic in all of his public confrontations with his accusers. He did this with Israel in eighty seventy. He removed Israel from his presence so that he might restore the Gentiles to moral and judicial wholeness. When he has accomplished this, he will then redeem Israel. Romans 11. He could also have asked these two questions. Where is the victim? Why is the victim not here to press charges? More to the point, he could have asked, by what authority have you, the witnesses, substituted your judgment for the victims? Who made you the authorized prosecutors of this covenantal lawsuit? On whose behalf are you acting? He did not ask these questions, not because they were irrelevant to the situation, but because they were secondary to his main concern, dealing positively with the sin of the woman. Did the Mosaic Law give to witnesses an independent authority to prosecute the covenant lawsuit as agents solely of the state? If so, then the state has the right to prosecute in spite of the decision of the victim not to prosecute. This would clearly compromise the judicial principle of victims' rights. I am arguing in this chapter that the state possesses no independent authority to prosecute if the victim voluntarily decides not to prosecute, an argument based heavily on Joseph's decision as a just man to put Mary away privately. See below, The Victim's Decision, pages 46-48. to The Victim's Decision is final until God intervenes directly, sickness, calamity, death, or at His second coming, to bring His own covenant lawsuit. Thus, the witnesses in John 8 were violating yet another principle of the Mosaic law. The whole incident was one of utter lawlessness and rebellion, which is the characteristic feature of every challenge to the God-given authority of Jesus Christ. Conclusion Fundamental to the concept of biblical jurisprudence is the idea of the covenant lawsuit. Ultimately, God brings this lawsuit against all mankind. He brings it against each person for each sinful act. Only the substitute sacrificed by Jesus Christ at the cross allows God to overlook these sins in individuals, eternally, for his covenant people, and in history, for covenant breakers. The victim initiates God's covenant lawsuit against the person who injured him. He acts as God's authorized agent. The goal of the victim is restitution in history, to the victim, but also, representatively, to God. The victim has the legal authority not to press charges he is allowed to show mercy and history to the criminal. Jesus did this at Calvary. The civil government has no independent authority to bring this lawsuit unless it can show that the victim is incompetent or unable to make this decision, a minor, a feeble-minded person, or deceased. One other exception, if the state can prove that the criminal is threatening the victim, thereby making the victim into an accomplice to thwart God's civil justice. Otherwise, there should be no restrictions against settling out of court.